Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the fourth installment in our Christopher Nolan movie review series. Today we are reviewing Batman Begins. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. And just so you know, listeners, I'm a little bit under the weather right now, so my voice will may not sound like the smooth silk honey that it always does to your ears. I know you're really missing it this week. That's okay. I should be back to normal next week, and thankfully, I have not been infected with the coronavirus. I am doing just fine, so no worries there. And Alan is uh, staying healthy as well. I am, even though I'm traveling around, I've actually been staying outside of the city with my aunt during this whole epidemic. So hopefully I don't get the coronavirus. That would be ideal. That would be ideal. Alan's been uh, kind of going around enough trying to outrun the virus, it seems. (laughs) Yes. It does feel a little bit like a movie we were talking about earlier, how uh, Alan is staying in the country, you could say, outside of the big city. Just like uh, in all the movies where you are trying to get out of the city. Speaking of cities, Gotham City is a big part of the Batman series. And I have no doubt that place would probably get infected with the coronavirus pretty bad because those living conditions look pretty awful. Oh, yeah. Especially in the the slums of the city. They have a name. I forget the name. It's like the... The Narrows? The Narrows. That's it. It was the Narrows. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Narrows, especially given that those living conditions are much worse. Although it is a kind of a fun fact, uh, this entire trilogy, when they filmed Gotham City, they shot it in Chicago. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty fun watching this now that I'm actually living in, in the city, um, seeing some landmarks. I'm like, I, I remember that. Or, hey, I work in there. So. It is really cool. And when this movie came out in 2005, I was 10 years old. And uh, I'm going to say about a year-ish or a little less than that. My family and I, we took a vacation to Chicago. And uh, we were going on like a, we were on a a boat going along the river through the city. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they're like, you'll recognize that building from Batman Begins. And you'll recognize that uh, tunnel. They use that in Batman Begins. So I got my picture next to the road. I'm like, this is where the Batmobile drove. Yep. That was a lot of fun to go to Chicago and see where it filmed. It does work very well as Gotham City. Now, parts of the city were done with um, miniatures and they tried not to do too much CGI. They did actually do a lot of miniature work, which looks pretty good how they blended it together. Right. And for those um, who are wondering what Tower Wayne Tower is, that's the Mm. Board of Trade building. Uh, I've eaten actually there. They have a cafeteria in the basement. I've eaten there a couple of times. Uh, It's actually some pretty good food, (laughs) all things considered. Nice. So if you were looking for something to eat food like lunch wise and you're in the city, I would recommend Board of Trade. That's cool. See, I wasn't sure if that was an actual building or if that was CGI. 
it's kind of both they CGI'd over the building. Obviously, you can't just have Wayne just built onto the Board of Trade. Um, so they did a little bit of CGI work to it, but the overall structure of it is they've kind of remained, they didn't really touch that as much. Yeah, that is pretty cool because I didn't know that aspect. Now, Batman Begins. This is one of the longer gaps between um, Nolan's films because his previous film, Insomnia, and if you haven't heard our previous Christopher Nolan reviews, those previous three are available right now. Make sure to go listen to those before you listen to this one. But Insomnia came out in 2002, and no, no quick turnaround with the Batman because um, he had pretty much been just um, knocking out his first three films. Yeah. Now, Batman Begins, on the other hand, came out June 15th, 2005. So it took, uh, it was about three years uh, before his previous film. Now, that makes sense because Batman Begins is a, I mean, Batman is a huge property. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially after what Tim Burton was able to do with Batman in 89. Um, That was kind of one of the lead-ins to what would become Batman Begins and then eventually this entire trilogy, this entire Dark Knight trilogy, is this more dark take, more mature take on superheroes, which we have really only with um, with that original 89 Batman. That was really the first time we had seen it, and then now we're getting it kind of again. But this time it's a little bit different because now we have a different director and a, a different, a lot more thematically, a lot more, uh, a bit more different themes this time around as well. Yeah, this film is the deepest Batman movie thematically, what it's doing, what it's talking about, than any that had ever been put to screen because you're right. Tim Burton's 1989 Batman was a very dark vision audiences weren't used to. Audiences were used to the Adam West, very campy, colorful Batman, which was incredibly lighthearted. I grew up watching that. Clearly not when it was fresh on TV, (laughs) not that old. (laughs) I watched the reruns, but I grew up with that as well. And I also grew up with um, the 90s television series, Batman, the animated series. And that was also uh, a contemporary that came out just a couple years after Tim Burton's Batman. And that was much more dark and serious as well. Which is it? It holds up so well. I was rewatching it a few years ago, and that is great as well. And so that was if you had been tuned into the television scene, you knew Batman had a strong life on TV. But Batman had faltered incredibly on the big screen. Oh yeah, yeah. Once after Batman Returns came out, uh, the studio wasn't really too happy with what with how that one ended up doing in the box office. And so they handed the, re- the reins over to Joel Schumacher, <laughs> who did Batman Forever mm. and eventually the infamous Batman and Robin. Yes. So those two movies were, uh, oh dear. If you've seen them, you know what we're talking about. They are yeah. the definition of bizarre. Yeah. They're strange. I would say Batman Forever is just incredibly bizarre, whereas. Batman and Robin is just stupid. It's completely silly. Yeah. And actually, I want to say, 
I don't know, I was probably like five years old and I was watching the, we rented Batman and Robin on VHS and I was watching the beginning of it and I'm like, this is, this is just, my five-year-old mind knew this was not right, knew something was wrong. Yeah. And so I don't even think I made it five minutes into it and I'm like, no, skip, Let's take it back to the VHS store. And there had been uh, enough years between this film. So Batman and Robin came out in 97, which was pretty close to when Christopher Nolan's first film came out. And so 2005 to 97, the Batman series was essentially dormant on the big screen. So given, what, eight years, um, I would say that's definitely enough of a palate cleanser for the series. So, uh, Christopher Nolan had created Insomnia with Warner Brothers, and that gave him the clout to approach Warner Brothers and say, because he had heard they were ready to reboot the Batman series. And he said, I have a vision for it. Here's my idea. The only thing is Christopher Nolan didn't really know the comic books very well. He just loved mm -hmm. the character and the story that encompassed. So he uh, contacted his friend, David S. Goyer, who was very much into comic books. And he said, I want you to help me uh, write the script for this film. And um, Goyer said, okay, I can't. I, I got to go shoot my own movie right now. But here's my ideas. I'll give them to you for free. And you can roll with it. And Chris said, okay, I love it. But then Chris called back a few days later and said, you got to write this movie with me. I, I think yeah. we can do it. And it had been Goyer's childhood dream. He told his mom, he said, someday when I'm a grown up, I'm going to go to Hollywood and make a Batman movie. And he ended up being able to do that. So he said, this is kind of like a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm not going to pass it up. Right. So him and Nolan set to work on creating the this new Batman film. And it's funny because no one wanted to keep this film incredibly secret. And this is like kind of a trademark. He would go along with the rest of his career is keeping everything super, super under wraps, making sure right. there's no leaks and ensuring there was no leaks. He's saying, I have the script. I have the ideas. You come to me and I'll let you look at them. You can't take pictures. You can't go anywhere else. Mm -hmm. with it um the only thing that got close to people knew what they were doing is uh goyer said him and nolan would go to a diner every day and chris would order the same thing for lunch every day which was an omelet and cream cheese and an avocado on the side yeah and they would like work out batman ideas and um someone put on the internet they're like i i look i'm seeing christopher nolan and goyer here every day and i'm pretty sure they're working on the new batman movie Okay. And also Goyer would go to the comic book shop and get um, his local comic book shop and grab comic books. And the guy, his, he has a friend that works there and he's like, are you writing the new Batman movie? <laughs> he's like, what? What would give you that idea? What? No. Yeah. And he was like sworn to secrecy, so he couldn't say, but it was, it was pretty obvious who was working on the film. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, eventually, they had developed enough of a script and they started to meet with potential people to play 
uh, Batman. And Christian Bale was one of the first people that Nolan met with. The only problem is Nolan said, like, what kind of physical condition are you in right now? Because, you know, Batman's got to be, you know, in great shape. Well, Bale was about to shoot the machinist. Oh, yeah. I have seen that, too. And it's pretty bizarre what he does. Yeah. And Bale is probably, I think he's probably close to like six feet tall. Mm -hmm. And he, for the machinist, which, yeah, it's, you should check it out, the movie. He got down to like 110 pounds, somewhere around there. Which is ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. He His body's like completely emaciated. He like quit eating. He took up smoking to curb his appetite. He went completely over the top with uh, his body transformation for that film. Right. And Nolan said, how am I going to convince Warner Brothers that you should be Batman? <laughs> so Bale said, I can do it. Just let me shoot the machinist. And um, after he shot the machinist, he gained about 110 pounds or more, like super fast. That's so unhealthy though. It's so unhealthy. And he did come on set and he was too big. Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, now you're too big and you're not even going to fit into the Batman suit. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Bale said he knew some of the crew working on the film and they said, hey, Bale, are, are we shooting Batman or Fat Man? And so Bale actually had to slim down a little bit and get man into better shape. It's, it's pretty crazy though. So eventually Goyer and Nolan felt like they wanted to do an origin story because Batman had never had an origin story on the big screen and never an official origin, just a straight origin story in the comic books either. And so they thought if we're going to actually reboot this property, we really got to do a full reboot and show how Batman becomes who he is. And so they were influenced by, of course, Frank Miller's uh, comic book, Batman Year One. Mm -hmm. And that is actually that was like uh, many people thought that's what the movie was going to be called. Um, at the time, um, one of my dad's friends was uh, very much into comic books, and so he knew a lot of the a lot of the stuff. And I'm 10 years old, and he told me like the new movie's going to be called Batman Year One. Yeah, I thought that was a stupid title when I'm 10. <laughs> and then when I'm 10, it's called Batman Begins, and I'm like, what kind of a title is Batman Begins? Yeah, yeah. So it's still an interesting choice, but yeah, it's fine. Um, a few other comics that were inspired by this are The Long Halloween, particularly the Carmine Falcone section, and The Man Who Falls, which I didn't even know that was a Batman comic. And when the executives over at Warner Brothers wanted to read the script, like I said earlier, Nolan said, you come to me. So they came and they they brought couches into Nolan's garage. And oh. yeah, Nolan gave them the script. And so of it for three years, essentially, well, okay, not counting the shooting time. So probably about two years, Nolan's garage was like uh, ground central for working on this film because he had the script writers in there. He had the production designers in there creating things and they're just going over ideas in his garage. Right. So how did this movie fare with critics when it came out? Well, 
Critics were very pleased with it. They gave it an 84% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Oof. Which, I mean, we've noted that Nolan's films have so far been very well regarded critically. Um, so, again, this is in some ways no surprise that another one of his pictures does very well critically. It's no surprise. It's a little bit of a drop from last time. Yeah. Um, because last time was a 92% and um, Batman Begins got a 70 on Metascore, which is still um, positive reviews. But it's a drop from the 78. Critics yeah. just thought Insomnia was great. And they thought, eh, this one is still great, but not as good. Yeah. Now, audiences, on the other hand, loved this movie. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, cinema audiences at cinema score gave it an A, not quite that coveted A plus, but up from a B of last time, which is a major jump. Yeah, that is definitely a major uh, jump in score when it comes to cinema score. And audiences over at Rotten Tomatoes gave it a ninety four percent approval rating. Oh man, <laughs> yeah, which is up from last time's seventy seven percent. Yeah. And then, of course, this film is a full point higher on IMDb. Uh, it currently holds a score of 8.2, which is up from 7.2. And if I'm not mistaken, I think all this entire trilogy is in the IMDb top 250. It is. This yeah. one is at uh, number 127 currently. Gotcha. Yeah, and um, which does make it the lowest on the IMDb Top 250, but that's still very respectable. Still, yeah, it's still on the list, so. And it's always been there, too. Yeah. So Nolan had been working with very small budgets up until this point, with his last film having a much bigger budget of $46 million. Well, with Batman Begins, they gave him a $150 million budget. Yeah, I believe it. I figured at this point, if he's going to take on Batman, he's going to need, you know, a budget that isn't 40 something million or under that. For something like this, that's more, that's definitely more Hollywood. It's going to need a much bigger budget than his dramas that he's done before. Absolutely. And they also got to pay these actors. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they've got a bunch of Academy Award nominees and winners. I mean, they've got... Morgan Freeman, Michael Caine, Christian Bale, yep. um, Liam Neeson, just tons of people. And of course, this this actually makes sense. They did release this June 15th, right in the summer season. Right. And this makes perfect sense to be released around this time as well. It's a superhero flick, which at the same time, too, even superhero movies that were coming out around this time are not near what this was like. They're kind of goofy, kind of not really taking themselves too seriously. And then we have this, which is a complete departure from what we've known for the past few years. That's taking itself very seriously and is a lot, has a lot more thematic material to it. So I, yeah, this has, I would say this is a perfect time to release this movie. Yeah, that's a good point. This is the first time we have had a superhero film feel like it's completely grounded within reality. I would like, say, especially since at least 89 Batman. Yeah. And even then, it's still even more. It doesn't take some of those more flares. Yeah. The 89 yeah. Batman was the closest we got. Even that still had some 
weird Tim Burton esque yeah it did elements to it. But and I would say Nolan is a smart choice because he has proven himself capable, which this is this is incredible for his fourth film. Oh yeah, yeah and, being king of the reins of a, mm-hmm. a comic book juggernaut like Batman is pretty successful. And um, he would have he would be he would be thirty two years old. Oh at wow! The time. Yeah. Wow. So not very old at all, but he's proven himself incredibly capable. Can you guess what uh, spot Batman Begins occupied at the weekend box office? I'm guessing it was probably number one. Yeah, it was definitely number one. No surprise there. No surprise there because um, the only other number one movie was The Perfect Man, which was the Hilary Duff family romantic Hmm. comedy drama it's pretty good you should give it a try but i don't think uh, i've heard of that one it it debuted number eight at the box office opening weekend (laughs) but the other uh films out that weekend so the top five was batman begins with 48.7 million no one's highest opening weekend to date yeah that's pretty good stuff Number two was Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt's co-starring film, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Ah, okay. And then number three was Madagascar. Number four was a little film called Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. Just a small film, yeah. Just a, just a small film. Another film I saw opening weekend in theaters, but that had been out for five weeks. Ah, okay. And then The Longest Yard, which came out at number five, which I think is an Adam Sandler movie. And just a little point of reference, um, Sharkboy and Lava Girl holding oh, no. strong in number six. Oh, no. <laughs> Robert Rodriguez. Yeah. So Batman Begins stayed number one at the box office for two weeks. And in its second week, it dropped to number two. And its third week, it dropped to number three. And then in its fourth week, it dropped to number five. And it was, it had a very large distribution in 3,858 theaters. Makes sense. Now, it did go on to be very, very successful. Um, domestically, it grossed 200, $205 million. In the foreign markets, $166.5 million for a worldwide total of $371.8 million. So yeah, that did all and you know, for all intents and purposes, it did pretty pretty great in the box office. It did, and I I would say also it did very well considering Batman hadn't been on people's minds very much. Yeah, nobody at this point still really knew who Christopher Nolan was, mm-hmm. um, and even some of the talent involved. I'd probably say at the time the most famous person was probably Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman, uh, or even in some ways, Gary Oldman, Christian Bale was pretty new onto the scene, but I would assume that that he was his popularity was growing at this point. So yeah, Morgan Freeman is probably the most, I guess, recognizable face we have. And the big thing is this film did way better financially than his previous film. Oh yeah. And this is just 
a preview to come of what the next two Batman films will make at the box office. And honestly, this is chump change compared to what The Dark Knight is going to make in a couple years. If Christopher Nolan's name wasn't already on the map with this movie, it was definitely on the map with The Dark Knight. And I think that this movie did double its budget and then still some making a profit. Mm -hmm. So it was still viable enough for them to definitely green light a sequel. It, it had done well enough. And of course, no surprise here. I would say it did actually receive an Oscar nomination. Oh, really? What for? It, uh, Wally Feister got the nomination for cinematography. Oh, okay. He did not win. Memoirs of a Geisha one. Ah, okay. But this should be pointed out, Christopher Nolan, his films have now garnered three Oscar nominations. Which is really good. Yeah, which is very impressive considering this is his fourth film. Yeah. So a couple of the other movies that were major hits in 2005 were Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, um, Brokeback Mountain was big at the Academy Awards and it starred Heath Ledger who would come on to star in the sequel. Uh, also V for Vendetta, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, uh, King Kong, the first Chronicles of Narnia came out. Oh, I forgot that was season five. Uh, so speaking of other superhero movies, the Fantastic Four came out. That's right. I looked up just a second ago to see what other superhero movies came out around this time. And yeah. Fantastic Four was one of them. So I would say it's, it was kind of a funky year for cinema. There was some like big hits, but a lot of like funny family movies as well. Yeah, this is very, this is getting, I guess, in the transition of moving out of the goofy early 2000s family movies. And it should be noted before we jump into anything that this is Christopher Nolan's first PG-13 movie. That's right. And pretty much from here on out, he'll stay exclusively PG-13, at least as far as this recording is concerned. Yes, that is very true. Alan, did you see uh, Batman Begins in theaters? No, I, I did not. Partially because I was probably nine. <laughs> and this no. movie is definitely PG-13. Yeah. <laughs> and my parents weren't too big on movies around this time. Gotcha. So, no, I wasn't able to see this one in the theater. Um, I did end up seeing it later on in life. I think I finally was able to watch it. It was definitely in high school at some point, probably when I was like a junior, I want to say, in high school. is when I finally watched this trilogy, probably with my uncle. He was probably the one who introduced me to that. I, did, even though I was 10, my parents, we got to see it in the theater. Oh, man. I didn't get to see every PG-13 movie, <coughs> yeah. Transformers. <laughs> um, when I was young in the theater, but I did get to see it because I loved Batman. I was just so into Batman and I always have been. So mm -hmm. I do remember sitting there in the theater and I can vividly remember sitting there and, uh, I won't give away the final scene, but I do remember the final scene and I just felt so excited and the lights were coming up and I thought, oh, that was awesome. And especially to yeah. a 10 year old. Oh yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. So, but let's say that you you are 10 years old. Let's say this movie's coming out, or let's say you're just old enough to see this movie and old enough to make that choice yourself. You see the trailer on TV. Would this trailer get you into the theater? Maybe. And I think I say maybe because the movie does look darker 
than the previous Batman movies that we've had. The trailer kind of tells a lot of the story to us, but it does make it out to be kind of that same feeling that Batman 89 was giving out. And so if I had seen Batman 89 and seeing this again, where it's kind of a return to form, I think I would be interested to see it. Um, so if I didn't have knowledge of Batman 89, I don't know. I, I, I'm not entirely sure if I would be too excited, but I would say yes. I would probably get a little bit excited seeing this trailer back in uh, 2005. Yeah, I would be excited as well to see this trailer. Um, and I I remember um, watching this trailer. I, I distinctly remember the scene where the guy says, where are you? And Batman is hanging upside down behind him and says, here. Oh, yeah. And I remember seeing the posters in the theaters. I was very, very excited for the film at the time. So when I saw the trailer initially, I, I was absolutely on board. And mm -hmm. now watching this trailer at the age of 25, I think the theatrical trailer is okay. I think there's enough there to pique my interest and get me intrigued at this looks like a superhero movie I don't usually see. And because usually it is more of that lightheartedness, this looks like what if this was a real thing? So yeah, yeah I think the trailer would get me in theaters today, even though um, there is some of that kind of... It's quick cut and it gives you a little bit of that um, still transitioning off the early 2000s vibe, I would say, in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. One other thing I should mention real quick is that David Julian is no longer um, working with Christian Chris, Christopher Nolan on this film. It is Hans Zimmer who does get a lot of the credit, but we've also reviewed this composer before. He co-composed it with James Newton Howard. That's right. It, James Newton Howard and Hans Zimmer work together quite often on soundtracks. But yes, this is co-composed with James Newton Howard and Hans Zimmer. Two very big names. And Hans Zimmer um, is, at this time, is not as big as he would become nowadays because he like, works on everything now. But he was definitely a very good or a very big choice, a very popular composer in 2005. Yeah, and we listened to a lot of his material when we reviewed all of M. Night Shyamalan's films. Yeah, yeah, James Hood Howard stuff, yeah. All right, listeners, if you haven't seen Batman Begins, first of all, where have you been? <laughs> um, yeah. Unless you're younger, then we, then we totally understand. But if you Makes haven't sense. seen Batman Begins and you don't want the film spoiled for you, then go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead, go watch the movie, come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. Young Master Bruce, played by Gus Lewis, one day is playing with childhood friend Rachel Dawes, played by Emma Lockhart, when he falls down a hole into a cave of bats. The traumatic event frightens him, but he learns from his father that we fall in order to pick ourselves up. Sometime later, Bruce and his parents go to an opera that frightens him because it reminds him of the bats. While leaving early, his parents are murdered by drug addict Joe Chill, played by Richard Brake. Left as an orphan, Bruce is taken care of by his butler Alfred, played by Michael Caine. Many years later, Bruce, now played by Christian Bale, is home from Princeton in order to take revenge on Chill, who is being released on parole. Before Bruce can commit the assassination, Chill is murdered by a goon sent from mob boss Carmine Falcone, played by Tom Wilkinson. 
Rachel, now played by Katie Holmes. Sorry, I keep saying now playing a lot because there's a ton of characters in this movie. Yes, there are. Rachel is ashamed of Bruce's intentions and takes Bruce to see Falcone. Bruce accepts and before being roughed up, is told by Falcone that since Bruce is the Prince of Gotham, he'll always fear what he never understands. This causes him to reject everything, especially his affluent lifestyle, and live a life of despotism where he learns to steal and that right and wrong may not be what he learned. Except he is caught by the police while stealing and is sent to a Bhutanese prison, where he does learn to fight and meets the mysterious Henry Ducard, played by Liam Neeson. Ducard takes Bruce in to the League of Shadows, led by the mysterious Ra's al Ghul, played by Ken Watanabe. There, Bruce learns the art of ninja and the terrifying ideology he can't just go along with. See, the League of Shadows doesn't believe in true justice, it believes in revenge and totalitarianism. Bruce all but destroys the League of Shadows, causing the death of Ra's al Ghul, but saves Ducard. He returns to Gotham, where he has been gone for seven years, and apparently legally pronounced dead. <laughs> he decides to put up a playboy front to keep everyone's suspicions under wraps that he has decided to use what frightens him the most, bats, in order to fight crime as the Batman. Meanwhile, his friend Rachel, now an assistant district attorney, is being harassed by Falcone's crew, which prompts Batman to help her out to take out the criminals through the legal system. One day, Rachel finds herself trapped by Dr. Jonathan Crane, a.k.a. the Scarecrow, played by Cillian Murphy, who is actually using Ra's al Ghul's drug compound to control his patients. Rachel has stuck her nose where it doesn't belong one too many times now, and she must be rescued by the Batman. He barely saves her in time when he realizes Ra's al Ghul isn't dead, but has in fact infiltrated Gotham as Henry Ducard. This results in an intense showdown where Ducard burns down Wayne Manor and you come to find out he has stolen Wayne technology, a microwave emitter, to release Crane's drugs into the air through the water system in order for Gotham to tear itself apart since it has become too corrupt. Batman enlists the help of Rachel, Gordon, played by Gary Oldman, Lucius Fox, played by Morgan Freeman, and Alfred. Did I already say he was played by Michael Caine? I think so. Okay. And he barely stops Ducard in time. Later, after the dust has settled, Bruce and Rachel have a touching moment where she tells him she'll wait until Gotham doesn't need Batman anymore. And Bruce and Alfred decide to rebuild Wayne Manor, particularly in the southeast corner where the Batcave lies as credits roll. Okay. <laughs> And I think, um, I think probably one of the, one of the big standouts of the story is, uh, how not only dense it is, but also given the time that it came out, how relevant it is in the, in at least American society. Um, because this movie's main focus is on fear, right? And control over fear. Um, and so, Relating that to what would what would happen just a few years before this 9/11, I think is a very smart move in terms of relating current events, or yeah, current events, and relating that into the movie itself and writing that fear angle off, kind of off of that. 
tragic event that happened about, I think, four years before this movie came out. Yeah, that's a very good point to make, is that kind of the main kind of crux of the story is Gotham is kind of a microcosm for America, where everybody has become so blase and affluent in their lifestyle, they just don't really care that um, little did we know that letting your guard down in such a way would cause uh, our lifestyle to be shaken like we never would have fought before. Right. And right. so in many ways, the League of Shadows is a terrorist organization that infiltrates Gotham way too easily and is able to cause mass destruction. Right. And I know that at one point, I think it's uh, they, this is said towards the end, um, when Descartes is talking to uh, Bruce, he says that, you know, the League of Shadows, we've done this before, you know, they go, their whole, like, I guess, motive is to remove societies and groups of people who have become too corrupt, right? And they've also tried removing and destroying Gotham once before with a different tactic. They just tried, they tried destroying it with economics. And they said that it was your dad was the guy who stopped this from ever tearing Gotham to shreds because he was like, I guess, the saving grace uh, when it came to integrity and wealth for the city and was able to keep it afloat, even though the League of Shadows was trying to rip it to shreds. And so they tried again now with a different angle. This time, they're, instead of going hitting the economy side, they're hitting it uh, with the people and hitting it with fear. Yeah, and this is the first time, I would say, where we really get a smart villain portrayed on screen that yeah. is playing into political philosophies and ideologies as his weapon instead of harnessing the power of the moon and the tides yeah. in order yeah. to use a giant death ray or whatever to destroy it and making it very cartoonish. There's really nothing cartoonish about this whatsoever. And it's interesting because for the trilogy, Nolan seems to tackle some major ideology and have the Batman, which the Batman embodies the best of like human ingenuity and individualism. Mm -hmm. Whereas the League of Shadows is this collectivism where, um, and then in the Dark Knight, we'll get like anarchism. And then I would say in the Dark Knight Rises, it pretty much tackles like communism and authoritarianism with Bane. Right. But that's a conversation for those movies. So right. with this one, I mostly see it as um, totalitarianism, where Raza Ghul is saying that the world is a pretty awful place, and we're the ones that have to keep it in check. The only way to do that is to burn down the forest, which is good in some ways to burn down a forest and let um, that that replenish the soil and rise back up. But uh, Bruce Wayne ultimately realizes that that's just not going to solve anything because you perpetually have to keep destroying things in order to make things thrive again. Right. Yeah, exactly. They both have the same idea where they want to they want to reinvigorate something. Right. The idea of burning down the forest, I would say, is an is an analogy that they both have their eyes set on. But I think the difference between the League of Shadows and uh, Bruce Wayne 
uh, when it comes to their ideologies is that instead of burning down the forest where the League of Shadows is literally going to destroy Gotham, um, Batman's uh, ideology is more on the side of, well, instead of resorting to literally destruction, why don't we plant an idea? Why don't, instead of, instead of destroying people, let's plant the idea, which in Batman's case is hope, that we're going to instill in the people and that that be the fire, more or less, that burns down this fear that has been built up in the city because of the League of Shadows and because of Falcone, because of Scarecrow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I do like that Bruce Wayne is going to use these ideas that he was given by the League of Shadows, but he was going to say, we need to have structure to the system in order yeah. to figure this out. And it can be done because it's not just Ducard as a father figure giving him these ideas, but it was also his dad when he was a kid. Right. Because his dad is a very wealthy person that is not uh, greedy, but he's using his wealth for the beneficial. Uh, he created the train system. He mm -hmm. works at a hospital. And you can learn through Wayne Technology later on when he talks with Fox that they are always trying to be innovative in uh, figuring out something that is good. But you also see that um, Wayne Enterprises has kind of been infiltrated from within. Rutger Hauer's character um, moved Fox to who helped uh, his dad figure out all this stuff. He moved him to like the basement. Yeah. And he, he for, so you can see that um, there's also uh, a lot of this kind of like greed and jealousy implanted within that as well. So it's not that um, Gotham in humanity is just evil. It's basically that kind of old um, saying like what happens when um, good men do nothing. Right. And so Thomas Wayne's taken out of the equation. Fox is taken out of the equation. And then Falcone fills the gap and he fills it with crime and destruction. And Bruce realizes that he can't just live this. Bruce's, I, I love the character of Bruce. I love his conflict because he's caught between two worlds. Mm -hmm. He sees like, well, what good did my dad really do? And then he also is like, well, I'm just going to go be berserk and um, live a very destructive lifestyle. And he ultimately lands on this, like, I can use human ingenuity for the good. Right. And it's also interesting, too, along with Bruce's character, is that when we first meet him, he's more or less living his life out of anger. Mm -hmm. Anger, and he wants to get revenge on Joe Chill for killing his parents, right? And the card says, that's kind of a dangerous lifestyle to live because you'll get to a point where you just kind of mentally destroy yourself uh, and you start to resent those who died for making you feel this pain, is what he tells him. And so it's interesting to see how this ideology of hurt and loss, where Bruce has lost his parents and now is living out of anger and is acting out on that anger, even though it gives him power um, and gives him the drive to continue to try and seek justice for what happened to his parents. Uh, he's going about it in a way that isn't exactly the most healthy. And in the end of the story, we get to see how his his ideas or his ideology has changed where he's not really living in, he's not really living in, in anger anymore. He's living, he's living within his own fear, but using his fear as a pedestal and as something that can empower him to do good. And it is interesting to learn how Ducard 
is saying, okay, now you just have to chop this guy's head off with yeah. a really blunt sword, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not going to work. And um, he's saying, you're basically just going to do this to prove that you you essentially remove emotion from the equation. Right. It's not about emotion. It's about, and that's essentially what he comes from because Ducard's family was murdered. He said that she was taken from him. There could be a crossover. I don't know. Mm-hmm. This this could be Liam Neeson from Taken. Um, <laughs> it was just it was just funny how he said that. Yeah, uh, my fiance pointed that out. But nevertheless, so what he's saying is is when these people are taken from you, you can get angry and seek revenge, but ultimately you will have to essentially create this cold calculation and remove emotion, and um, you will have to become this just constant of truth. He says, there's no more debating. He says, when someone stands in your way, you simply walk up behind them and stab them in the heart. Right. Totally cold the way he comes across that way. But, and it's very interesting because uh, him and Batman are like two sides of the same coin. Right. Where um, they both have essentially the same goals, but they go about it in uh, wildly different ways. And I do like that throughout this movie, um, I feel like they give the character of Bruce Wayne sufficient emotion because he's trying to balance public life and he's not really sure how to go about it properly. But then at the same time, he's also trying to run around and fight people in a bat suit. And he's also not quite sure, like, am I doing this? And I, I think that's portrayed pretty well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is. We, especially in that second half, we get to see how, you know, he has to live up both of his lifestyles if he's going to fulfill, uh, I guess, avenging his parents' death in a way. And then also not raise any suspicion that he's the one who's doing it and has to live this more playboy lifestyle um, at the same time. And so we kind of see how that takes a toll on him. It isn't really explored too much. I know in later sequels we'll get to see it explored on a deeper level but yeah we do get to see how you know his lifestyle is beginning to shape uh and beginning to have a little bit of conflict here in this movie and i do like the visual dichotomy we're presented with as well how Mm -hmm. the league of shadows is completely removed from the world yeah they are living up on this mountain and it's pretty easy to believe you're right about things when you're utterly removed from the actuality of what you're talking about. Right. Batman does spend quite a bit of time amongst um, the less fortunate, like specifically that young boy mm-hmm. um, that Rachel does rescue in the end. And Batman gives him his uh, special goggles, which seemed nice at the time. But then I was worried that his family would probably beat him because they probably thought he stole oh, yeah. it. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, and I did, here's a bit of trivia. That little boy plays a uh, Joffrey Baratheon in Game of Thrones. Oh, okay. I thought he looked familiar. Yeah. But I'm I just like, put pieces together. Where have I seen that before? That guy before. So that's him, but much younger. Yeah. I do yeah. like how it takes the time to show that there are young, innocent people that are struggling. And then also good people such as Gordon who is trying to make ends meet and trying to maintain integrity. Mm-hmm. And uh, clearly it shows that they're not, they're fight. They're not fighting for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And it does kind of build 
Gotham City to be more of a character in and of itself. Mm -hmm. It's the character that I would even say one of the main characters because Bruce is the one who spends everything's everything that happens in this movie is happening because of Gotham City, right? And so as well as it is Bruce Wayne's journey to learn a, a newer or a, to change his lifestyle in order to save the city that he loves, it's also Gotham's uh, journey as well where they need to learn or the people need to learn you know, not to live in fear, but to live in hope. And so you get to see how, at least through the first like hour and a half, you get to see how this fear has just kind of taken control over everything because of Falcone, mostly Falcone, but we find out it's really the League of Shadows that's behind it all, the whole thing. And then later on, you get to see how, finally when that comes to a head, how it's, even though it's only happening in a part of the city, in the Narrows, you get to see how destructive that can, how destructive that can really be, that, li that living that lifestyle um and what their ultimate goal is for so yeah i would say gotham city is definitely a character in and of itself along with Razo ghoul along with rachel batman etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think nolan and gore do a great job once again even further visually representing that mm -hmm. by showing that no aspect of life goes untouched right because wayne manor is technically outside of the city but it's the first um, piece of infrastructure to be burned down. It's the first piece of um, life in the final chaos to go. Right. And I think that also depicts a sacrificial nature as well, is that um, Batman uh, is willing to let his home burn and in order to rebuild it. And I think that's how he sees Gotham as well, right. is that... Um, that there is a lot to be picked up with Gotham, but he still has that attitude of we're still going to rebuild and we're going to push forward as well. Right. And I really do love the character of Rachel in this movie. I think I have appreciated her character more this watching than before. Honestly, I was kind of hoping this is what Ellie would have been in Insomnia. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think Rachel's character, because before when I watched it, Rachel's character didn't seem all too important to me. Um, but watching it now, I see I see more of why she is as important as she is, because she's kind of like the key, you know, to locking away and finally getting the source of all the rottenness of Gotham out of the hands of the people and getting starting it to get to the point where they can finally begin working. And as you kind of it's the analogy you gave earlier, start burning down that forest, but in the fashion uh, that Batman is going for. So yeah, I see now more than ever how important Rachel's character is because of her occupation and role in the story. And I, I love that the film opens with him and Rachel as children. Yeah. yeah. And um, this traumatic event in Bruce's life will have just major repercussions they never could have saw later on as adults. And I do appreciate that she knows his identity and quite a few of his close confidants know mm -hmm. his secret identity. And right. because in all the superhero movies, they're always trying to keep their identity from their loved one. Yep. This one opens it up and brings in a whole new relationship dynamic. Um, that I think does work because we really care for Rachel and her cause because Bruce in the beginning sees her as essentially a lost cause. Mm -hmm. He's like, you're fighting corruption and it's not going to work because uh, eventually 
crime will just overcome it. And the only way to do it is just get your revenge and move on with your life. Right. And so she is, she is like his compass. She's kind of his guiding compass, his standard to kind of fall back on. But I do love how she is always saying like, oh, Bruce, you, you still don't know how the world works. You're having your 30th birthday party up here and I got to go yep. down to Arkham Asylum and yep. deal with stuff. And I, I do love how he is also um, realizing that and trying to save her and he's being pulled between two worlds as well. Right, right. Um, I think also this film does a powerful job on the technical side as well. Particularly, I, I would say one of my favorite aspects of this movie is the score. Yeah, this was, and okay, this is something that uh, I heard a small interview with Hans Zimmer. When he was constructing the score in the main theme of Batman, there are really only two notes to it. Um, it's a pretty famous theme. But he was talking about the construction of making this theme, and he said the reason why it's only two notes is because the motif, the Batman motif, is is meant to be feeling as if it's incomplete, just as Batman's character is incomplete. And mm. so it really helps invigorate and I would say help uh, shape the character of Batman with this theme only really being two notes. Now, of course, there are more motifs in it, but the, I'm talking about just like the main theme alone, the main Batman theme is the one that after hearing him in, in the interview, I am thinking, okay, that makes the theme make a lot more sense to me because it has a bit more meaning than I initially thought. I'd never do that. Yeah. I really like that as well. And this, I think it provides a sense of epicness while also bringing down a very kind of um, touching, um, moving quality as well, almost a sentimental yeah. fashion, particularly um, when Bruce is remembering his past mm -hmm. and he's thinking about his parents and um, the life that he had and could have had if circumstances hadn't been the same. And we even get some of those notes as well, like when um, Bruce is looking at his dad's stethoscope yep. that burned up in the fire and he's remembering back on that as well. And uh, particularly when he's dealing with Rachel, this film does a great job of blending the score with what's on screen. I know yeah. we talked about in Nolan's last movie, the score was like almost non-existent. I think David Julian did his best, mm -hmm. but it's just uh, you're missing out. And this is one of those great instances where the score and what's on screen. Oh, it brings the emotion. I'm I'm not sure we may not get that in a separate Nolan film until Interstellar. I, I'll, I'll have to wait and see what I think about Inception. Right. Yeah. No, this is definitely the best musical composition we've had in a Nolan film so far. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's because we're working with very, very, very experienced composers, James Newton Howard and Hans Zimmer. Uh, so it's no surprise that the music here is as good as it is. I found myself wanting to rewatch a couple scenes also oh, yeah? just because just because they looked so great. Mm -hmm. um, one of the more memorable scenes is when Batman tells Ducard, I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you. I know right. that everybody quotes that line. Yep. And then he just um, flies back through the subway as the thing crashes. And I'm like, dang, that looks so good. And yep. especially because I watched the behind the scenes material. And when they were doing the cape and um, they, they did a lot of practical stunts and practical effects. Uh, behind the scenes, it looks bad. 
but within the movie, oh, I'm yeah. like, they really polished that up and made that look realistic. Oh yeah, uh, that's usually how it looks. When, when you see the behind <laughs> the scenes material and they haven't put the final polish over it, it's like, oh, what in the world? <laughs> <laughs> the, they did work a lot of movie magic with this as well. Mm -hmm. And particularly like with the Batmobile, that I would probably say for me, that's probably the most memorable section of the movie is that chase with the Batmobile. And I like it because you pay attention to the emotion on Batman's face. He is worried Rachel's going to die. And he is also thinking when he sees that helicopter, what have I just gotten myself into? Yeah. Yeah. This is like I'm driving the first time he's really become Batman and facing the police. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of his trial by fire yeah. moment of because he's always stayed in the shadows. And this is the first time he's brought to the public's forefront because he's on TV. And um, I'm thinking like I could tell going through his mind, he's thinking, what happens if I can't escape? Yeah. What happens if I can't shake these yeah. cops? Like we're going to um, be in a very tough situation. Mm -hmm. I like that the scene works because it's exciting and also that I, I think really watching it with the SSG goggles on this time, I got a lot more out of that scene. Yeah. And I would say definitely the emotion and the more, I guess the panic that he has is definitely what makes that scene mm -hmm. more memorable to me. Although I think this is kind of where my negatives start to come into the picture because mm -hmm. this is, it's around this scene and actually a bit before this as well, where the movie starts to focus instead of on, you know, developing the ideas and the ideologies of all these characters is focusing now more on the action side of it, which is not necessarily a problem. It's just that I found the, the drama portions of this movie, the portions where they're talking about fear and talking about all those ideas, I found that to be just wildly more interesting to me than these action scenes. And I've mentioned before in previous movies with namely Memento, and insomnia that I didn't think the action was filmed very well in those movies. And it's kind of the same with this one. It doesn't, I don't think that the action is shot very well. I think it's better than what we've gotten before, but I don't think it's necessarily something that I find to be very engaging. Unlike uh, what would, what typical action movies usually produce. I would say the adrenaline is definitely there. But on the technical side, how the action is shot, I would agree with you. Some of it is too much of a shaky cam. Yeah. I like in the beginning where Batman is kept in the shadows, like when they, when he's fighting at the docks mm -hmm. and you don't want to see him just yet for the first time. But yeah, I, w I noticed that as well. And I got to say, um, when Zack Snyder shot Batman v Superman and Batman fights all of the goons at once, that is some of the best Batman action scenes we've seen because all of that like happens within camera with very few cuts yep. like happening in real time. Right. Those are always the most impressive um, fight scenes to me is when they can do the choreography like through one take and not have to cut seven, eight times and the cameras like being thrown yeah. all over the place. Yeah. Now, when it comes to the Batmobile, it is definitely iconic and mm -hmm. it's definitely once again it's it's going for a more realistic angle than it is you know the batmobile that we've seen in years past where it's a bit more stylized it feels oh, yeah. like something uh that would be more military militaristic i think is the word best word to to describe it but i again with this scene i it looks kind of weird 
in some aspects. And I think part of that is because they're using miniatures and uh, mm, yeah. jumping across rooftops with this Batmobile. There, I think this is where another criticism of mine comes in. Even though it is as serious and is as grounded as it's trying to be, there are still some of those superhero, uh, I guess, cheesiness that still lies within this movie. There is a little bit of that. Some of it I liked a little bit because I think you couldn't make a superhero movie without a slightly toyetic feel to it. Um, I don't think they go over the top on it too much. Um, but to answer your uh, one of your negatives about how it becomes more focused on the action, I would say that I do like how the first half of the film sets up the ideology and then the second half we get the real life payoff of it. Because I think that's something a lot of people miss is it's all good and well to talk about how great communism is until you find yourself living in North Korea yeah. and you have no freedom. And I think that's what we're presented with here is um, all this talk about how these possible models of utopia or justice could work. And then when we see um, Ducard play it out in real time, it becomes literally a very hellish nightmare uh, with the gas and right. People, it's in. It becomes very much kind of this, um, almost like a depiction of hell with these bat flying around and everybody is turning on each other. So I don't really have a problem with the uh, with these action portions here towards the end. I will say the movie is quite long at two hours and twenty minutes, mm -hmm. but I think they did their best to streamline the story as much as they could. Yeah, I would say that I don't think that they necessarily just do a complete stop of developing these ideas. You are correct. They do mm. build up to these portions and then kind of see more of a action side orient or an action oriented payoff to it. Uh, I don't necessarily mm. have a problem with that. I think my problem more stems from the fact that I just don't like the way that the action is filmed here. And I don't really find oh. it nearly as engaging as the rest of the movie. I think that's where my criticism is coming from. Um, because yeah, they don't necessarily just completely drop everything here in the last half. This is definitely where right. it makes it the most important of the of the full movie because you get to see the wrap up of everything. And maybe we're having a bit of the same issue here. Is I think some of the editing and how the film is shot feels, I don't know, maybe a little too connective, or possibly a little too clean. I don't know. What do you What do you think? I guess what I'm saying is my problem is I think a lot of these sequences feel like they fit together almost too well. Like they almost become a little bit too polished and the logical like sequence of how the story plays out feels almost maybe a little bit too by the numbers. I can see that. I, I would say that the editing of this movie is very well done. Um, yes. All things considered. I mean, the way that the action is edited is a bit different. Um, but I would say in an overall sense, this movie is very, very well edited. But I guess I don't really, I guess I'm not having the same criticisms as you are when it comes to everything fitting together a bit too nicely. I guess I'm maybe because I have the foreknowledge of how Nolan will film The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. Perhaps. <laughs> and I would say he really grows as a filmmaker here because I think I think we just have it's either a lot of static shots or it's a or it's a lot of shaky cam. Mm -hmm. 
And I think this is also because he's never worked with a budget this big or a story this long before. And so I think that some of the creativity behind the camera is just missing. Um, one of, I will say there's only one scene that I've always hated how it was edited. And that is when Rachel is talking to her, talking to the DA Finch, mm -hmm. who was one of the cops in Insomnia. Oh yeah. That's if right. you'll notice. That's right. The one that, I forgot. yeah. Um, and then it cuts to Bruce standing outside of the courthouse and he looks like a street person. And then it's a really like wide, long distance um, take of Rachel and the DA talking that always, um, I always thought that was horrible, mm -hmm. even when I was younger, because I thought it's just, just a random shot of Bruce just showing he's back in Gotham, hanging out on the streets. No, he's supposed to be like watching them somehow from the steps of the courthouse. Yeah. Do you know what scene I'm talking about? I don't think so. I'm having a hard it's time a picturing it. It show it's so jarring. It feels so uh, because we have the quiet, intimate uh, hallways of the halls of justice, and then we get the loud streets of Gotham, and then back to the hallways. I'm like, uh, that it's always been jarring yeah. to me. But I guess it's not a big yeah. thing. I think one of my other criticisms is the way that the dialogue is written. I'm not saying it's necessarily pointless. I think that's the complete opposite of that. I think the problem I have is the way that the dialogue is written doesn't really give a whole lot of subtlety. There's like exposition spilling in like practically every scene that we have. And it gets to the point where these characters feel a little bit more like robots than they do actual real characters to me. They just kind of are spouting what they believe instead of, I guess, making it a bit more subtle. I guess that's what I was trying to get out earlier when I was talking about how the story kind of plays out in that way mm -hmm. is that you're right. It does seem some of this doesn't feel very organic. It just feels like they're playing this story out exactly how they wrote it on the page and then they shot it and then it's just edited perfectly together to just just perfectly logically play out. So there's almost like no room for errors within the story or any sort of surprises. I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm coming across correctly in the way that I'm saying it, but I guess the way that you're saying it is correct is some of the way the story feels out feels too robotic. Like, yeah, of course that is exactly how they would respond. And that's exactly how the next scene would play out. Yeah, no, I feel, I, I think I know what you're saying because there really isn't a whole lot of room for audience interpretation, I would feel. Um, I would say that there's definitely room for it, but I guess to me, not enough because characters just kind of speak what they're thinking. Um, they don't, it definitely, uh, is more of a tell don't show kind of vibe, um, at least to me. Not, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's all tell and not show, but it's definitely something that I feel hinders the movie in terms of interpretation. Maybe that's just because the ideas that no one is going for, and I've heard this criticism before and this response where these characters, the characters that no one writes are very robotic and they speak in exposition. 
Um, and then there's a kind of argument to it where Nolan's films are a bit more so complex that they kind of just need to spell it out sometimes to the audience. Uh, the ideologies of the film and of that character. I can kind of see both sides, but I think that that definitely hurts the movie when you want to maybe interpret it for yourself. There is, I don't think there's a whole lot of room there for audience interpretation because of how the dialogue is written. No, there's really not room for interpretation more so it seems like and this is what we'll get with each three movies like i said it's gotham city is the setting and we kind of have two economic or political scenarios facing off against each other and then we kind of watch how that plays out in like a real-time scenario what if we had bruce wayne who is the you know free market capitalist square off against a communist or against an anarchist right. and how would that run through in the sequence real time so in that sense i guess an analogy that might help at least this is the way that i kind of thought of it was it felt like more like i was just kind of on an amusement park ride and i was just strapped in watching all of this like pre programmed events play out yeah, i can definitely feel essentially that. i can feel that because yeah. i noticed in the these this really was mostly just for the first hour or so because the first hour is very montage heavy um where no one is kind of cutting back and forth in time um it oh, yeah. felt i felt like i was watching a movie like i knew i was watching a movie and that's something that i hate to say because uh that means that i'm seeing more of what the uh, what the director does not really want me to see. Um, so that's another criticism I have. Is it's just And this really is only for like the first hour or so, like I said. Uh, I never really felt it in the later halves of the movie. But in the, at least this first hour, I felt like at times I feel like I'm watching. I know I'm watching a movie. I can see the process of this being made out. And that kind of pulled me out, at least for the first part. And I wonder if that is due also in part to this being an origin story where we're not able to really relate to this character in any sort of way, because this character has no idea who Bruce Wayne has no idea who he is. And also no one does make the choice to tell the story out of uh, sequence again, at least like you said, for that first act or so where it starts as a kid and then he jumps to dreaming in the Chinese prison And then he jumps back to when he was in college and then it jumps back seven years later or so when he is escaping the League of Shadows. When I saw this uh, when I was younger, honestly, all of this whole first act I found to be a bit confusing because he is essentially telling almost three different stories at once. He's telling the origins of young Bruce and his parents getting shot and then he's showing where Bruce Wayne is. Um, this very lost person fighting in a Chinese prison camp. And then also um, halfway Bruce, where he is torn between the innocence of his younger self and then what he, what will see him become as this very just lost individual. So they're tackling a lot within the first act of the story. And because Bruce has no idea who he is and we have no idea who this character will develop into, I will say that does make it hard for me to really invest and relate into this character because yeah. I don't know where he's going. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily hindered by not by I wouldn't say that I'm uh, not connecting to the character of Bruce. I, I think that the way that he's written out is isn't 
necessarily all that bad. I think my problem is the way that they go about telling that, I think just makes me f feel like I know I'm watching a movie instead of mm -hmm. being invested in the picture. And maybe, and I did, I, not like the, I'm seeing the first hour or confusing or whatever. I'm, I, I understand where the story is going. I think my problem is I don't like it when I know that I'm watching a movie. I like it when I know, mm. when I don't, when I, I'm more entranced within the picture and in, in the world that no one is creating. Instead of knowing that I'm knowing that I'm watching a movie. Sure. And I mean, I would say Bruce is a very conflicted character and it's hard to be on his side. And I would say we only really like start to, I would say I start to associate more so with him once he decides to begin to do the right thing. And then he has this real conflict, this crisis of character of living a double life and trying his best to fix up the city. Right. And I think I was really hit with that point of he is just turning 30 years old and he kind of has no idea what he's yeah. doing. He's trying to do the right thing, but I don't know, will he be able to do that? So I still think this film is well edited and it's well told, especially for telling a very large and David Esquire said that he's like, this turned into a very big epic film. Oh yeah. And it, it definitely shows. And it definitely shows. And I think for the first outing, it's, uh, I still like it. I think it's good. And I think I would agree with the issues you're having as well is that it's kind of a tough sell. I would say also to the audience is like, we're going to tell a two and a half hour film about a man who uh, learns to become a ninja in the Himalayas. And he was a rich socialite whose parents were murdered. And then he's going to uh, dress up as a bat. And we want you to believe all yeah. of this and buy into yeah. it. They, they do. I think he does do a pretty, a relatively good job of making it as realistic as he can. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, given the circumstances that he's under, uh, it's kind of hard to make a superhero movie realistic. Um, and relate and as relatable to real life as possible. I think he does a good job at mm. doing that here. I think in later movies, he would do an even better job. Um, but those are for the next few weeks. <laughs> um, but I will say that this, I think, is definitely a product of the earlier 2000s. Because again, going back to the beginning of the podcast, where I said that this movie is definitely tackling and or I guess has imagery of the aftermath of 9-11, uh, this is definitely something that I feel connects more with people who would have experienced that firsthand. Um, I know you and I were probably a bit too young to know what was going on when 9-11 happened. So I, I can see where this movie would be more impactful for those who lived out in this situation than us who didn't really know exactly what was happening. Yeah, and very much so batman is the symbol of american hope that oh, yeah. we can tackle any problem even in the face of great distress even in the face of seemingly chaos and it's a pretty strong visual towards 9 11. instead of a plane they use a train and it's going to drive straight into a building right and um cause mass chaos and disrupt life as they know it but this one ends differently yes and instead of the bad guys winning for the time being batman is able to overcome that so i think you're very much right is this it's also a product of its time this film um came out uh what 15 years ago mm -hmm. 
yeah, this film, this is this Batman Begins 15th anniversary. So I would say being removed from that um, scenario, and especially um, 9-11 was 19 years ago, mm-hmm. I would say um, that impact is probably not as prevalent as it would have been to audiences in the theater today. But it's still recognizable, and I still think they tackle that issue fairly well. Oh, yeah. I absolutely agree. Well, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Batman Begins? Batman Begins, while it has a lot to it, and I mean, like, a lot of material, I don't think there's a wasted minute anywhere in here. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Being two hours and 20 minutes long, and a superhero movie that takes itself seriously and tries to make its situation as realistic as possible relating to past events um that with a message that honestly is probably a message america needed to hear at the time um and seeing how there no one is able to take a superhero movie which up until this point hasn't really been done this way before only kind of with 89 batman i think he does a very good job at writing a movie that i feel has a lot to say and a lot to say along with a lot of very important issues that it feels it needs to tackle. I think it does a very good job at tackling those issues. I think that my only problem with it is it's still got that superhero cheesiness to it, which is fine for some people. I don't, I'm not too big of a fan of it, and, but others might not see that as much uh, as, big, as an issue as I do. Um, and I think that the characters here, are, they can, they're not written as well as I guess I would, I would have, I would have liked because they are kind of walking exposition spillers, but I still find the drama elements of the story to be very, very intriguing and something that I want to kind of keep going back to and keep watching. So while I'm not too fond of the last act of this movie, I still feel that the first two do a sufficient job at, I guess, satisfying me for this superhero movie. Even being a guy who's not very big on superhero movies, this is one that I, this is one that I find that I will definitely return to. I already own it anyways, so I at least like it enough to own it. So anyways, at the end of the day, probably seven out of 10, but a very strong recommend for me. I think that this movie does a very good job, at least giving you a lot of meat to sink your teeth into, whereas most superhero movies nowadays don't necessarily have this, this much with thematic material to dive into. Batman Begins is a strong effort at showing that superheroes can depict real life world problems and social problems in a relatable way. And despite them, despite nobody uh, going to vaporize our water and cause us to hallucinate, <laughs> likely being a, a scenario, it's still a representation of what the country was going through at the time dealing with uh, international terrorism. And so for that reason, Batman is, I would say, for the time, and even still, one of the smartest superhero movies in um, taking the genre in a completely different direction where it's not someone fighting a goblin or an octopus uh, trying to stop a sun from (laughs) blowing up the city. Yeah. Instead, it brings, I would say it smartly brings in ideologies 
albeit sometimes they can be very much just plain and out there in your face. Not that not to say it's not written well, at least at least it's competently written and um, smartly told. But then at the same time, um, there is room for improvement, I would say. But then again, I have always loved Batman and just watching him bust through Falcone's car and pull him up and say, I'm Batman, just put a smile on my face like I was a little kid again. And so for that, I think Nolan is able to not just bring in uh, real world issues, but also still bring out that inner child and make you excited to watch this guy in a suit, in a cape and suit, just fly around and beat people up and uh, ultimately do the right thing. And that's something that I love about Nolan's films so far is that he always portrays a, a positive worldview where ultimately we're not left with um, this feeling like, oh, like, gosh, I guess moral relativism does win out in the end. <laughs> it's uh, more so that there is a moral compass to um, the world, that there is a definitive truth and that the truth will always prevail over crazy ideologies that people employ through the moral relativism of like Ra's al Ghul, for instance. So I really enjoyed rediscovering this movie. I hadn't watched it in a long time. It was definitely exciting. And I think a large part of that is due to the film is very well shot. It does. I would say it deserves the Oscar nomination Wally Feister got, which is incredible because I didn't like his cinematography in his last movie. <laughs> Um, and I would also, I'm shocked this movie, um, didn't get anything for score. Yeah. I would say that is interesting that it didn't get an Oscar for score. So I think the cinematography score, the writing, all of it coming together, Batman Begins is a powerhouse opening for Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy. And so, yes, I'm also giving it seven stars out of 10 with a solid recommend. And it has it's greatly uh, increased from my last review. Go listen to my review of Insomnia. That was so full. Yeah, we had that one was pretty, uh, pretty drastic in the scores that we gave between you and that I. That was polarizing. Yeah. <laughs> and I do own Batman Begins on Blu-ray. I got it uh, when it. I actually got the DVD when it came out, and it was the ugly full-screen version. Yeah. So, <laughs> I upgraded to the Blu-ray, although the full screen um, box art was much better than the Blu-ray art, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I definitely recommend, um, Alan, you own the Blu-ray? Yeah, I actually own the uh, Trilogy. Uh, there's, like oh. a, there's like a box set that I got. I think it was like 20 bucks at Walmart. It was really cheap. Nice. Yeah. I think you can get really it for 15 now, actually. Yeah, right now I did see it on Amazon. You can get the Dark Knight Trilogy for $15 on Blu-ray. Uh, five that makes it five bucks a piece an incredible deal oh, so yeah. if you don't already own it i recommend picking up the trilogy listeners so you're able to definitely watch along with us that way and i would say if you're uh if you like this batman movie then i would say go check out some of the um animated series that was in the 90s uh created by bruce tim in a way that's the definitive batman for me that will always be the definitive batman and that did actually receive a theatrical film 
Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Oh, yeah. I highly recommend it. Check it out. I've heard about it. I haven't seen it. Yeah, I would definitely recommend if you haven't seen Batman 89, definitely go back and watch that because that mm. this movie definitely pulls a lot from that tonally. Um, now, of course, it goes about it in a much different way that's a bit more current. Yeah. But I think that these two movies are definitely easily comparable. So, Nolan did not jump straight into um, the sequel to this film right afterwards. Right. Uh, it would be a couple more years before we got the sequel, which would be called The Dark Knight. But that didn't end uh, Nolan's working relationship with Christian Bale. Nolan's next film... He didn't just bring Batman on board. He also brought Wolverine on board as well. That's right. Hugh Jackman. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hugh Jackman came on board to star opposite Christian Bale in, guess what? Nolan is back doing another adaption. Technically, Insomnia is a remake. Technically, Batman is an adaption from comic book material. The Prestige is adapted from a book from the 90s which I have actually read Ooh. and I will be able to bring my knowledge. Uh, I listened to the audiobook. It's actually free on audible right now. So if you want to check it out, I'd have to, you can, you can listen to it. It's, it's really not very long actually. And it's actually very different from the movie. So um, I'm excited to rewatch the prestige. Haven't watched that one in a long time. Yeah. I've seen that one. Uh, man, how many times? I think probably three or four times. My uncle showed it to me back, way back in the day. Um, so it, it has been a few years since I've seen it. I don't think I own it, actually. Uh, I think I owned it uh. a, for a while on DVD, but it has been a while since I've seen it. So I'm curious to see what my thoughts are now going back to it. I do own the Blu-ray and it's got the very ugly Blu-ray cover art where half of the poster is filled with high definition audio ah. and video and it looks awful. But regardless, I'm very excited to rewatch The Prestige. My sister actually just rewatched it with some friends like a week or two ago. Oh. Yeah. And um, it was actually the very first movie we ever watched in our theater room. So I'll have to tell that story really? next week too. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. So I'm very excited to review The Prestige. So the question after the show here, listeners, is did you see Batman Begins in theaters? And if you did, what was your feeling after the movie? Were you uh, disappointed? I know uh, over there at um, Now Playing, they reviewed this movie and not all of them recommend Batman Begins, actually. Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we will be back next week with Christopher Nolan's fifth film, The Prestige. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, 
please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.